correctly spelled Damon. The Pullman Way, in honor of Ouija, what movie do you recall watching in a childhood sleepover, and how'd it go over? I'm Katie Rich, and Goonies is the first movie I ever remember people saying to me, wait, you haven't seen this? And it was obviously a sleepover success. Hey, it's me, David the Seven. True lies, and I guess it went fine, but you know, awkward Jamie Lee Curtis erections. I'm going to follow that with Beetlejuice, uh, which ended in the Harry Belafonte dance party. So how could you argue with that? I am Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with uh, the 1955 film, which is apparently assembled from television episodes. Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, which provided a great excuse to spend most of my childhood in the woods. I'm David Ehrlich, and I guess I'm going to go with Killer Clowns from Outer Space. But really, I'm just going to just say now, once and for all, that it's pronounced Ouija. 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 They're saying Ouija on the TV ads. Ouija. Why is it pronounced Ouija, though? Because it doesn't, it doesn't have an sense. E at the end. No, it makes this no is sense. The, this is the gif gif of 2014. It's yes in two no. languages. Why? Of course it's Ouija. Oh. <laughs> Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine, too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 45 for Tuesday, October 21st, 2014. Today, David Ehrlich, who is the oldest human being alive, uh, I believe has some new reviews to share with everybody. Mm. Uh, we have one new review to share with everyone by Special K 1988 who says a phenomenal it's called I appreciate this podcast a great deal fuck that uh, <laughs> a phenomenal podcast with younger younger film critics uh, not young never, though not, not young younger than I, I don't know who's he's listening to Manny Farber's podcast on the side I guess uh, with younger film critics that never devolves into a fanboy bro down hoedown I, though I do spend my weekends attending those. Uh, all the hosts are charismatic and offer intelligent insights. Like many, I enjoy the addiction. It says addition, not addiction. I misread that. Of Joanna Robinson. While Patches, Katie, Dave Seven, and David all sound like my kind of cinephiles. Keep up the great work. One love. Thank you, Special K1988. If you would like to leave us a review, we'd greatly appreciate it. And we will read it on the next episode of the show. Just go to our iTunes page at Fighting in the War Room. Is that a Bob Marley reference? One love. Let's get together and feel all right. Oh, I'm on vacation. But no. Uh, This past week, I had uh, an, um, an amazing Broadway-going experience uh, when I went to the theater to see A Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, which is a transport from the London theater scene. I believe it's based on a book by Mark Haddon. I didn't have that in front of me. Am I, is that correct? Yes. Sounds correct. Woohoo! Um, the play was written by Simon Stevens, who wrote a pretty well-known play called Punk Rock. Uh, and it's directed by Marianne Ellett, who won a Tony for War Horse. And it's starring this kid, Alex Sharp, who is some, like, fresh-faced Juilliard grad. Uh, I don't think he's ever done anything. At least his bio says he's never done anything. And he plays this 15-year-old named Christopher, who is kind of a hyper-intelligent... Uh, savant. Yeah, he's, he's hyper- got savant syndrome. So he's he's hyper intelligent, but he's obviously crippled in social situations. What I think is interesting is that they don't say that he struggles with autism, but 
you know, after the book came out, I think everyone made a point that this is this is uh, delving into the ideas and the lifestyle of, of people with autism. And I think the play, whether it is about autism or not, is, is very successful because whatever this kid Christopher is going through, um, he is crippled by it and confused by it and uh, elevated by it in some way. He's a math pro, you know, and he wants to solve a mystery of a dog that's been killed in his neighborhood, and and he engages fully with that. Um, but he, at some point, has to go to London, and that is a very terrifying experience. Talking to his next-door neighbor is a terrifying experience. And getting to s see him have those interactions with people um, is a real joy, and it can be really scary at times. And what this play does really well is um, externalizes what's going on in his brain. You know, the sensory overload of going to a place like London. And they really use stagecraft to kind of take you inside his mind. This is not going to please everybody on this podcast, but it reminded me of like a Danny Boyle movie in some ways, in the best way possible. Check, I please. Say. Yes, no, exactly. I knew that would I knew that would send you out the door. But um, this is in, in a very positive way. In like a, in, if millions had gone perfectly, uh, it would be like this staging of a curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. And it made me think... Just like all this amazing stuff that Marion Ellett does in the play and what this kid Alex Sharp is able to do, just like his controlled mannerisms and why, how Christopher never becomes a caricature, at least in my mind, of what autism can be. Or I, I left the play thinking that I've never really seen a good movie about autism because movies and television seem to catapult it into caricature or at least making it um everything's rain man uh, is what you're talking about yeah well rain man is an obvious uh, a comparison point here um despite the fact that Rayman is based on this guy named Kim Peek, who did not have autism he had fg syndrome uh which is more like an intellectual disability um so every time we see autism it seems to either be amplified from something that wasn't autism in the first place or played to either comedy or twee drama. I'm thinking of Adam, Oof, uh, this, yeah. Yeah, this twee romance that came out a few years ago. Um, and yet I saw a film at Toronto, The Imitation Game, which comes out soon with Benedict Cumberbatch that I also thought was like, oh, maybe this is an interesting exploration of autism. Huh. Uh, and yet Benedict Cumberbatch insists that it is not, that uh, Alan Turing, the scientist, is not on the spectrum. Well, that is there is, any that evidence is, that he was or wasn't? Well, here's the thing. I'm, I'm basically watching his mannerisms and, and thinking that. You don't get to listen to Benedict Cumberbatch talk about who has autism and who doesn't from history. I, I don't think. He's an but actor. I think you get to listen to him talk about how he chose to play the character. Yes. Yeah, maybe. And about but research he's we... done about the historical figure, which yeah. is more than I've done about Alan Turing. I, don't, yeah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't assume that. <laughs> I think there is writing on Alan Turing that would suggest that people who say that Cumberbatch's performance skews towards a true... A display of autism or a reflection of autism uh, that 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 would be correct that would be in line with Turing um, but I throw it out to all of you if you feel the same way about seeing autism depicted in film I know David's a big Temple Grandin fan so mm. maybe I see you it should in my start head. but oh, <laughs> oh god here we go um, but well, I don't know Let's call it like right crazy now. here and... on the podcast <laughs> I'm also curious about people who've read the book. I didn't actually read A Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, and it seems like people are kind of conflicted over the book about the way it wrote about autism. I, I've read the book, but I don't feel especially qualified to talk about it because it was so long ago. Uh, I, I do, I do. from what I remember about the book, I certainly have a tough time imagining how it would be translated into a uh, musical, but... Uh, they didn't make it into a musical. A musical, it's just a play. 
It's just a play. Just yeah. a, okay, okay. The, the musical thing was really throwing me. No, there are no songs. That I would be very strange. <laughs> yeah, I think that would send it over the deep end. It can still be like really lively, and I mean, there are again, like, there's a lot of stagecraft involved, lights, and using actors as as the furniture, as the props in the show. It takes a wild direction, but uh, it's all it all feels like an extension of all of the sensory overload that he's experiencing. But no songs. I, I think that's sort of the key. I mean, what I remember about reading in the book is it was pre my understanding of what somebody on the spectrum how functional they could think while still outwardly acting like somebody that had a disability uh the book did a pretty okay job of putting me in that mindset the thing was is i didn't know anything about the condition and i know more now and i feel like if i went back and read it I would constantly be putting it up against other portrayals we've seen recently in media because it seems like as, you know, uh, I guess modern uh, concepts of mental health also sort of grow. Like, it's really, Asperger's and autism is a really interesting uh, dramatic tool to have a character that looks at something in a very specific way. And I I keep thinking about community because I keep wanting to bring it up because I think that Abed very specifically was the first character where, like, from the first time he was on screen, I'm like, oh, this is a character that has some sort of autism. Uh, but, like, I can't I can't remember reading the initial book if I felt like I was belittling him. I just remember thinking it was really interesting being in the mind of a character with a mental illness and seeing his thought process, uh, his logical thought process lead to, you know, him getting lost and having irrational fears and whatnot. So I hope that the well, Broadway show at least managed to translate that out, out of the medium. We were talking about how much it changes. And in the time since that book was written, like Asperger's has kind of come out of, I mean, you know, it's very recently that there, you know, there's been discussions that maybe there is no such thing as Asperger's. And the idea of the autism spectrum has kind of grown. I mean, then there's also been the anti-vaccine stuff, which is its own level of crazy. But the way that that stuff is treated does really change over time. And the, the distance that's come since Rain Man is really interesting. And I think, Patches, what you were talking about with this guy who plays the performance, like maybe it's easier to kind of see those nuances and kind of see just the character for who this person is with autism uh, if you don't know the actor. Because so often we see Tim Grandin or Adam or Rain Man or something and we're watching an actor kind of like stretch their muscles. And if you don't know that that's an actor doing that, it's a lot easier to kind of just see that character for who they are rather than the Mm. actor and what they can do. And that might be why Danny Putty's uh, performance on Community is affecting in that way because he wasn't really a known factor before that show. Um, I, I did read the book. I, and I thought it was great when I read it. And then I got sort of told by some people that (laughs) it wasn't great. Um, I still say it's a great entertaining story. I think there are other books that are more accurate. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the curious incident of the dog, the nighttime is a bad book in any way or irresponsible. But if you want to read the reason I jump or born a blue day, which I have read subsequently, like those do give, a more nuanced, um, less of a caricature. Honestly, I think in the book he is a caricature and it might be that it's different in the play version. I don't know because uh, I haven't seen it. But the other thing that I will say is that... Um, no, I don't remember what I was going to say. Who, yeah. who are you saying is less of a character or could be? Or? In the play, Well, the main character. Less, yeah. like, may, I don't know what the adaptation does to that caricature that he was in, the, in, in Mark Haddon's book. Could he be a play expanded i don't i don't really understand i have not read the book so i don't really know i mean he is the main character i'm not saying expanded i'm just saying tone like uh, stereotypes toned down maybe 
I think that's the case. I wonder, too, if, like, because it's, it's British, right? So yeah. everyone has British accents, and if somehow that creates a divide for me so that it's less exaggerated. You're like, everybody in this place is so smart for some reason. Yeah, he <laughs> talks so elegantly, um, and, and, and maybe that's because he's British, but also because he has autism, you know? He, he's so literal, and yet I can believe that because he's speaking in a very proper I, I, British accent. Yeah, I like how you found your own ra- white racism inside yes, the, thank God. the autism conversation. That's the goal. That's the goal here. Well, I'm, I'm very curious what our listeners think about this because, I mean, I don't have much experience in the real world with autism and I see a lot of movies that try and tackle it come under fire and I mostly agree with a lot of those kind of uh, uh, criticisms because the movies aren't very good Um, but I really adored A Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime on Broadway I mean move to tears good it's it's fantastic so if you come New York way I would highly recommend seeing it Um, and maybe Danny Boyle will make it into a movie that David will hate one day yeah, that's what I, every I, filmmaker wants. <laughs> I know that's a natural button on the segment, but I, I do want to say really quickly that it's interesting that Asperger's has, and Community did a good episode, or at least segment about this, the way that Asperger's has been used as a storytelling ga- gimmick. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dave made a good point that it can be a really good storytelling tool, but it's also, when you have a character like Sheldon Cooper on Big Bang Theory, who is such a popular character, um, where the he doesn't really have Asperger's, but they kind of put him forth as his Asperger's character. It's sort of this excuse for a character to just tell it like it is, like, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch oh, man. Sherlock. I, I'm sorry, I want to press pause here because my father is a large fan of the Big Bang Theory, and we had several conversations where he's like, why don't you like this <laughs> show? I'm like, that is like asking a black person why they don't like blackface, asking an actual geek whoa, why they don't whoa. like oh, Big hang, Bang Theory. Hang on. Well, no, Comparing no, no, Big Bang me... Theory to blackface is not our, not our best move here. Well, no, no, let me, let me talk about why it's irresponsible because it talks about geeks as if it is some sort of thing where it's like oh it's so cute he just doesn't know any better when where they're writing him is as the portrayal of an actual disease occasionally and flip-flopping between the two of them is irresponsible i Mm. would argue as is responsible as blackface but obviously that's my horrible touchy subject yes but i'm very happy to hear patches that you like to curious uh instead of the dog in the nighttime broadway adaptation because i feel like if you could (laughs) Take that experience and through different mediums, attempt to explain it to people. That's at least a step in the right direction instead of just making fun of it. Yes. If Alex Sharp, this kid who's at the center of the play, gets to be on a television show or in movies soon, we will all be for the better. He will be going places. So keep an eye on that guy's name. That's how I'll end this. Uh, so this week, uh, Force Majeure comes out in theaters. This is a film that played at Cannes and won some sort of jury prize, apparently. It played at Toronto and wowed many of us. It is a Swedish, apparently it's a drama, according to Wikipedia, which I would dispute. Um, and I will, because Ruben Ostland, the writer-director of this film, uh, made one of the funniest movies I've seen all year. And it is in Swedish. It takes place in the French Alps, about a family going on uh, vacation, going skiing. And uh, one day they're just sitting for breakfast and all of a sudden there is a, a uh, avalanche, a purposeful avalanche. The, you know, the, the 
skiing resort, I guess, does the explosions and brings down the snow. They accidentally do it during the day while everyone's sitting there, and everyone's scared shitless. Everyone runs, and, well, they're all safe. It's, it's the avalanche is on purpose. It's not going to kill anyone. But, unfortunately, the father runs away as the mother tries to protect their two kids, and that is just the beginning of heaps of shit for this family and their relationship. It is a very, very funny movie, um, and very sad too with obviously relationship stuff but what i posit to you guys is i don't think comedy is necessarily something that transcends language very easily um there are probably a lot of funny movies that i haven't seen because i just can't 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 get can't get get uh language and if i could see them in their original language i would be much the better but uh, i cannot so i'm curious about foreign films that have transcended uh, the, the comedy transcends their language for you guys. Any ideas? Katie, um, I'm I'm thinking you. of a couple of different movies that I think share in common. Basically, setups, not necessarily physical comedy, but a, a setup of mostly the farce idea. I mean, I've never seen the original uh, La Cage au Faux, but I think that would probably be a similar thing. Or Goodbye Lenin, where Daniel Brühl is trying to pretend to his mother that uh, the Berlin Wall hasn't fallen. Or even something like... Um, Life is beautiful, which is, you know, someone may or may not bring that up. But the idea of a setup that's kind of easy to understand is like someone is trying to hide something from somewhere else. And, you know, you think of the French farces where everyone's slamming doors and running into each other. And I like Goodbye Lenin for that because it's something that, you know, you're getting to see this version of history from somewhere totally different, but it's totally within the confines of a structure that you understand. So in that way, comedy is kind of international, I think. Um, Dave, what about you? In terms of foreign films that I remember finding like wickedly funny for probably the wrong reasons, uh, the only thing that comes to mind immediately is Delicatessen, (laughs) which is sort of a post-apocalyptic French Sweeney Todd uh, about a man who feeds his tenants in his building with people. And it just it has this weird sort of tone. And I saw it around the same time that I was like getting into early Lynch and everything, that it just sort of all felt in step and I don't know because I'm not a French uh, dark comedy enthusiast if this is an easy thing that trans- <laughs> well I mean really? maybe I should be on Facebook you are for some reason you should remove oh, that yeah, from I, your I just do that for the advertisements um, but I, oh, I feel I like that really had like a tone that I could recognize much like you know something like Gummo where it's sort of funny but sort of disturbing and I really enjoyed it in the, like what the mid 90s I was probably too young to see it you can see it now, though. I think that is the the mastery of Jean-Pierre yes. Genoux. Most of his films probably fit in that category. Uh, my answer is much more lowbrow, but um, I'm going to have to go with Kung Fu Hustle. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> and just sort of the Looney Tunes aspect of it, of course, makes it easier to follow um, without the language barrier getting in the way. So that would be my answer. That's the, I mean, and that's the origin David? of so many Kung Fu movies. It's, all you have to do is watch people beat each other over the head. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No language required. David, do you I have I mean, one? I I don't know. It's it's a loaded question. I <laughs> David doesn't see foreign films. It's not a loaded <laughs> question a, at all. It's, a it's an easy question, question to answer. I find okay. I that I'm laughing I never laugh at foreign movies all the time, but when I think of like out and out comedies like the uh, like foreign equivalents of uh, of a Judd Apatow movie or something like that. I, I feel like the movies I'm laughing at, the foreign movies that get um, imported here and maybe this is more symptomatic of that than anything else tend not to be broad comedies i mean they are very funny like you know films recent films i'm thinking of like we are the best and things like that these are movies that have very funny parts in them but i don't know if i classify them as a comedy typically when i go to like the new york asian film festival and i watch some of the like their version of american pie 
uh, there is a little bit too much of a culture clash. I laugh at Johnny Toe movies, but there is sort of a universal elegance to his filmmaking that uh, makes that possible. I think of like Jacques Tati movies, are, but there's no speaking in them. So <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's easy. Um, and, you know, even one of his contemporaries, like Pierre Tax, uh, those are very funny, but I, they're also sad. I don't know. It's hard to say that they're out and out comedies. There's not a Japanese yeah, rap I mean, movie Sion that comes Sono's to films are very, very funny. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's just something that I don't think about. I, I just, uh, <laughs> yes. I, I, yes, okay. Yeah, you have no, no I, heart. I, You're I done. You're done. This is the mini segment. Both, both sides are valid. <laughs> I think I laugh at these foreign, at foreign films all the time. Uh, but I do think that, depending on the context, it's very easy for things to be lost in translation. So. David Ehrlich, seen and the we, most, and like the least. To, yeah, <laughs> and we haven't talked about the foreign comedy that was the biggest hit in the U.S. of late, which is Amelie. Like, that's the thing that translated, I think, best to American audiences. And it's not just the romance Amelie of it. is like, a comedy? Like, I don't see, I just, my brain doesn't think of it like that. Like, Amelie is like a heart, beautiful, it's heartbreaking a, <laughs> romance that has a few smiles in it. With, like, I don't. No, it has laughs. It's no mic What is a comedy? A com- I don't even know. <laughs> okay, let's oh go there. Oh, my God. I'll, t- I'll tell you what a comedy is. To wrap up here, I'm recommending Clown, which if you didn't <laughs> see Clown from a few years ago. I you love would. Clown. I think Fox Clown's catcher. hysterical. Uh, what oh the? God. That is oh irrelevant. Uh, Cloud, Cloud is on Hulu. It is, I, I think it's a Dutch film, correct me, or Danish? So. I don't Danish. know. Casper uh, Christensen, Frank, whatever. It's uh, it's hysterical. And the last scene should is would probably get you arrested if you shot it in America. So uh, I would recommend Clown. I would recommend seeing Force Majeure this week or whenever it rolls into a theater or streaming service near you. to wrap up today's podcast uh we're actually going to talk about another podcast totally unrelated to fighting in the war room or maybe and depending on who gets murdered mm, by the end of this one episode. of us could be dead um, right now yes uh you if you listen to podcasts you've probably heard of serial the new podcast from the creators of this american life it's uh one true crime story told week by week as they say hosted by sarah Koenig, and Radio. She says her name uh, is all she has. Literally every episode. <laughs> I'm too into the murder to care, care about, about women. Names. How do you have this pronounce anyway? Guy, Band <laughs> patches. All right, all let's patches. let's blast through that for a second here. Concentrate, everybody. <laughs> I appreciate so this it podcast. If you get her name right. That's all. It oh my god. Uh, this this podcast week by week is sifting through the evidence surrounding this 1999 murder of this girl, uh, teenager, yeah, high school right? Student. I mean, she must have been 17 or 18 years old, Hyman Lee, and unfortunately, someone was convicted for that. Well, maybe not unfortunately. Someone was convicted for that crime, Adnan Saeed, and um, this podcast is basically picking through all the evidence because maybe they got it wrong, or maybe they didn't. This uh, Sarah is, is really... Uh, absorbed in the evidence here and kind of the, perhaps the mismanagement of the case and all the stories that are conflicting. Who knows what's going on here? Um, but she's interested enough that week by week she's going to dig through this 
crime and see if she comes out with the same results as the cops did and throws Adnan in jail. Um, I, I really enjoy this podcast. I, I'm going to be upfront with that. Um, people know that I like Murder, She Wrote, mm. so they should obviously <laughs> suspect that I would enjoy serial and other murder mystery type uh, entertainment. Well, do you like, do you like uh, true crime? I, I Is get... something about it being true? I don't mean to push your segment forward, but I'm curious. I can. I can. No, I, I can enjoy true crime, and I have before. Like, I really like um, the Paradise yeah. Lost movies, Central Park Five. I mean, I can sit down and watch one of those schlocky A and E hour longs about diving into a single case. Um, what I find interesting about Serial and why I have reservations about it, despite liking it, is its serialized format and how it's approaching true crime as entertainment. So I understand why calling itself Serial kind of harkens back to that classic radio format, dramas, fictional dramas. I think is key here, um, because by serializing true crime, I think that serial is basically the NPR version of Nancy Grace or America's Most Wanted, um, which sounds crass, but hey, NPR can be crass and lowbrow, and I think that this is it. Hmm. Um, Dude, is that it, because you, know, you think that it, telling a true crime story is fundamentally crass and lowbrow? No, I don't. Because these films that I mentioned, Paradise Lost, Central Park Five, these are containing their stories and putting their intentions on the table. I think I would have different responses to Serial if Sarah said in the first episode up front that she did not think that Anon committed this murder and she was going to explain why based on digging through this evidence. Or I would also be engaged by it if it was telling me that we're going to go through the detective's investigation chronologically and learn things as they did to see why perhaps they made a mistake or what they've overlooked now that we what can have does, a macro what look does this case. The it does not do that. crafting this narrative using the ingredients provided by real life uh, do to lessen your enjoyment rather than simply deepen the because nature I think of it's, the project? The feeling of being strung along where we're turning the case and turning the details and turning the question marks into I don't know if it's come back is next it strung week. along or is uh, it like that's, that's what manipulated? Kind of, right? Like there's there is a manipulation. I mean I both because she's making choices right. about what we know and I think she's crystallizing our ideas about, say, Adnan's guilt or not guilt or freedom. Uh, what what he should be like if she should be out of jail if he didn't do it all of these things were making assumptions by episode one and i think it's difficult to retract that or see different sides of this case um if we already but that's have the most interesting the thing to me episode. about it there's a there's a show on showtime right now that has just aired the first two episodes which happens to be the same number of episodes of serial that i've listened to at this point called the affair and the gimmick of the affair or the structure of the affair, if you want to be more generous, is that it, it goes back over this affair between a married man and this woman in Montauk. Um, and the first half of each episode is from his perspective, and the second half of the episode is from her perspective. It's both filtered through their memories. There are details, you know, in his... They're, they're sort of fantasized based on their genders. Uh, and I was talking to my girlfriend about it, you know, and I was saying that I think it's interesting that his story comes first, because I always assume that hers has a veneer of honesty to it that his lacks. And maybe that's just because I don't trust men, or maybe that's because I'm skeptical of what comes first, and I think that anything that comes after that is naturally a corrective. Uh, but I think that's at the heart of what I find interesting about that show, and otherwise it's sort of a, a trite narrative of, uh, or at least at this point it's two episodes of, of infidelity. And um, for me, Serial is very much like that. I'm 
hugely engaged by my own reaction to this. I think that it would be absolutely irreparable if Sarah Koenig came out in the beginning and said, you know, this is what I think. Uh, that would like I think it's it's. But that's what the Paradise Lost films do, and I think that's why they're more successful. Because if you're going to launch this campaign to dig up all the facts, then more successful. A they're, they're, but more successful something. in what sense? Because I agree with with David that like more successful. The, I think I've made the comparison between the affair and serial as well. I completely agree with that. Well, one's fiction. I think that's important. Well, no, me. but I, what's wrong with telling this story in a fictionalized sensationalized way because it's not dishonest it's manipulative i think serial is manipulative but i don't mind the way that it's manipulating me and, and, and how would it be, in the way that would it be less manipulative if the co-host or the host rather of the podcast who's essentially the voice of god while you're listening to this told you what to believe i mean how would that be that'd be significantly more no no no. but it's different because she's not it's not she should tell me what to believe it's that they at the end of every episode, it's like, will they, won't they? I don't know. I mean, it's intentionally sort of goosing it up, which is yeah. fine. It feels old-timey radio to me, format. and that's fine with me. But I, I don't think she's just straightforward laying the facts out. They carefully constructed this in a way to keep us off balance, which I think the affair is... And also, is, there's, is the there's, it, it, there's no real... I mean, you can wrestle back and forth as however much you want, as I'm sure you do pretty much every second while listening to this show, as to... Uh, Anand's guilt, but the fact of the matter is that you know right off the hop that they had no compelling evidence as to whether or not he committed this murder. And in this country, and yet there are moments where she will tell you that there that is suspect, and maybe that's not true. That she's withholding information that would make you question this, but she's allowing you to settle on opinions about Anand early on without telling you why. I feel like my opinion is changing all the Also, I feel like. You know, I, I just happen to believe that unless there is con compelling evidence, which the kind of evidence that you would not be able to omit from the opening of a show like this, and that, like if it came out, but that's what you don't uh, know I, about. I, it. I, I that's trust what you don't this. Know. Like that's, I think that's really uh, irresponsible as a listener to think to assume that. Yeah, she's not going to wow. reveal like a bloody yeah. glove in his truck this of his car like, on episode six. Well, the other thing is she doesn't know. She she has a lot of research that she's doing in the moment, so she's not. She doesn't have the entire case. Wait, wait, okay, wait, wait, know, wait, wait. Let's hold pinned up. down. She doesn't have all there's, her interviews there's done. A couple things inherent in both of these forms that I think everybody's overlooking. First of all, this American Life is built around a three reversal structure and an, like a story so of course they're not going to tell us things they are building this story like they would like a this american life episode to keep you engaged which i think they should because also as somebody who likes true crime i like true crime that takes place in like the 1880s but basically anything pre-manson is fine with me i've read a lot of books there's a reason you have to tell the story like if you're telling the story for like murder porn you're one of those id you know netflix specials about the people who kill their wives and it's not at all interesting. If you're telling a true crime story to engage the reader, then you have to have like something else. The reason I like uh, stuff that takes place in like the 1880s or like uh, devil in the white city or whatnot is because it's not just HH H. Holmes, the serial killer, but it's that and the Chicago world's fair times are changing. And this crime is indicative of something. It sounds like I haven't listened to obviously all of serial or really much of serial at all, but it sounds like at the end of this, I'm hoping it comes into like this little form and we see why it was structured the way it was. And it's really interesting to do it with a serialized podcast because you would assume that 
you know, there would be, you'd want all the research done before you picked your thesis angle. But I mean, <laughs> that's also part of the form. It's fun to have this conversation with people while you're distributing a true crime podcast. Yeah, I, I mean, think the I fact just, that this conversation is ongoing, like my guess, and I don't know this, is that they started airing the episodes so that people would come forward and anyone who went to that high school would come out with anything that they knew. I mean, it's a fascinating way to potentially solve a crime, but I think they're also really aware that they might not solve the crime. And that, I mean, that's that, one like, inherent it's already, tension. In. You don't think it's already done? I thought it was like eight episodes. Yeah, no, I, they're, no, it's not. They did a oh. they did a blog post recently where she said that they're still researching, they're still doing interviews. They're, yeah, not which done. is it? I mean, is it one of those things like the thin blue line where it's accidentally going to end up being relevant or it sounds like but they want I it to be I think you guys are totally mis missing the whole point of the show, which is that <laughs> it's about it's about this process. It's yeah. not about what happened. It's about this process of inquiry. No, I understand it's about the process. But what I think is interesting is that it's not rolled out in a way that mimics how the investigation was done or their ongoing investigation. It's pieced together in a way that draws you back into the next episode, you know, cliffhangers and and some information is given and some information is not. I mean, you've only listened episodes, to one episode. But, but uh, they will and I also, but, you know, I listen barely. to it online. I'm not sitting there, uh, you know, maybe if I continue catching up at this rate, I'll be what is it? They upload one new episode a week. Yeah. Yeah. Every yeah. Been so, so like far. I've just been sitting there listening to it, you know, one episode after the other. I don't the format hasn't really entered into the equation for me. But Matt the the thing is, like, yeah, they're withholding stuff, but they're eventually going to tell us everything because this American life is responsible journalism, right? So they're not going to just withhold stuff in order to manipulate us endlessly. They're trying to keep us, you know, I agree with Katie that my opinion changes all the time. And so they're trying to keep it balanced so that we won't know. And I'm not really hung up about about the journalistic no, I don't think integrity of the show. I think it's very I think it's very thorough and and honest and truthful and and you know I believe everything that she's saying. I'm not saying that it's manipulative manipulative in that way. I, I just have more concerns about true crime uh, rolled out in this fashion as entertainment, as this kind of like cliffhanger entertainment, and what that means. You know, when we were at like Toronto, Michael Winterbottom had a you film. Have moral what? concerns. Well, I mean, isn't that, yeah. isn't that all? I guess, I, I, guess yeah, yeah. I do. I mean, I mean, like we have no. But I like no place in these I like self-contained stories. No like Central Park Five. Central Park Five is is beginning to end. It it, it is, tells the story it wants to tell and has the ending that it wants to have. Like it's all out there in one bite and. Like something like the staircase, beginning to end. That's the show they want to put out there, and you can have it all. Like it's finished before it's unleashed. Um, but I think that. So I was going to say that at Toronto, I saw Michael Winterbottom's new film, Face of an Angel, with kind of fictionalizes the Amanda Knox, mm. uh, Amanda Knox case, and the Amanda Knox media circus. Um, people back home here following the case like it's entertainment, like it's a reality show. Uh, and in a way, Serial is a reality show because it's ongoing and it's, and it's you know, editing down the information to make it as entertaining as possible and to get you to come back each week. There's something unsettling about that. But it's not unlike like a reality it really show, offensive. it just feels a little... They're not crafting a whole new know. narrative. Just yeah. for entertainment's sake. And that's a really big difference between Nancy Grace and this, is that Nancy Grace is so, like, invested in a single narrative about what's going to happen and really wants you to think that one person is guilty and one person is innocent. And what I find really interesting about Serial... You don't, you don't think that's no, how Serial is? No, I really is? don't. 
I mean, I'm trying to keep us guessing. Well, if it is, it's always possible they're building to the huge reversal a few episodes down the line. I mean, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if that happened. She seems pretty convinced that Adnan did not. Well, see, the thing is that, like, if if research is ongoing, that feels irresponsible until I remember that this is not how we prosecute crimes. So why do I really care? You know, like, I mean, I, I, I get like that this podcast. I feel like she's saying she wants to think Adnan didn't do it, but all the evidence is against him. It's like it's like cult of personality versus the facts, and so she's trying to to exonerate him. I mean, I think that's her agenda, honestly. Or really, she's trying to find well, out what happened. If nothing else, she, she wants to exonerate happened. him to have a better story. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. That's true. <laughs> Wait, that's, that's okay. No, that's okay. This is Weird. not yeah. a criminal justice system. But They're I think giving that, like, us what the, we want. The, the, what Serial is about is how, where, it's about the intersection between stories and law. I mean, stories and, and history. And how does this show begin, but with an inquiry into how people remember their own recent past. She talks to a number of young kids and asks them if they can remember a non-specific day in their past, and none of them can, none none of them with any detail, unless something significant happened to them that day. And the crux of the story is that there are these 21 minutes of unaccounted time where Anand can't remember where he was one afternoon because to him, allegedly, if he was as innocent as he claims to be, it was just another afternoon in his life several months before he was questioned about it. And, And so I think that you know, he is trying to find the story about, you know, to tell sort of his own history. And the show is looking at his history as a story. And I think therein is the whole crux of this. And I really, it really doesn't, it doesn't matter to me in a way if he's guilty or innocent. I presume that, of course, as soon as she meets him, she wants him to be innocent. He seems like a nice enough guy. And if there's no bloody knife, then we it's our duty as Americans, really, to assume that he's innocent. Uh, but like, and that, that doesn't really enter into the equation for me, and I don't think it should for you either. Uh, but I think that I don't think it's irresponsible, and I think that if we don't do this sort of thing to our history, to our crimes, to if we simply assume that the justice system is absolute and that we don't make well, drama I don't think out of anyone, this, we don't get to the... I don't think anyone is arguing that because I, like I said in the beginning of this segment, I enjoy true crime and I enjoy reading about it and I enjoy people who reinvestigate. There's something about well, the format let me, here Patches, really what like I'm getting at. Zodiac as a narrative, the David Fincher Zodiac, because it doesn't have a conclusion as somebody who likes murder he wrote. Okay, so yes, then. definitely. This is not, a, this is not about wanting a right. finite ending. This is not about wanting to know that there's already uh, a solution here, that well, she's going to pl- exonerate him or something, or that well, she's going to accuse no, my, him as a murder. That's not really what it's about. You, does it matter to you uh, if this narrative ends up being the truth? Well, what, what narrative? The, the narrative I mean, of Serial. If what do you mean? Serial as a piece... There is no truth... That, that I I don't think you're fully grasping it because well no no I'm, I, I I'm asking you a specific question right? because it's like okay I see where it could possibly be irresponsible to deal with a true crime narrative in a way that's supposed to artificially build suspense or you know try to do it without having a full picture while you're still you know you're selling your product essentially while you're still doing your research I see that. But I'm wondering, like, what's the sum total thing that's going to bother you, like, as a human being? Like, what's what's our what's what's our problem <laughs> with telling true crime stories without a definitive, like, stance that this is history or this is a narrative? What's a what's the what's the gray area problem for you? Well, that's what I'm basically trying to figure out because I don't necessarily have 
again, I enjoy this show. There's just something... This is... You know, I've been seeing people say that this is, you know, groundbreaking right. entertainment, or this is this is hitting new heights in, in how we rediscover crimes or reinvestigate them. Well, I mean, um, I don't I just think, don't think it's, true. it's I as compelling because it's not thorough and it's not because of its serialized nature it's, it's, and because it's kind of going back to storytelling crap the same way that True Detective. Or, I mean, I think Kitty and I have talked about this elsewhere. True Detective or The End of How I Met Your Mother. It's people trying to solve the case before, you know, to outsmart the storyteller. And it's a highly addictive form of, of television. It's Encyclopedia Brown. Yeah, and radio. I guess that's what I, it feels addictive and maybe, maybe that's, that's why, why I, I like have it a so resistance much, to I it. I hate when people try to do that. I hate when people are trying to figure out lost and looking <laughs> theories of how shows are going to end. Right. Who fucking cares what you think? I want to like... <laughs> Serial's a little too Dan Brown novel Whoa, for me. Whoa, calling us all lowbrow? Yeah. Yo. No, I'm not calling you lowbrow. I'm really not, and I'm not are saying it's not thorough. Are you calling us? What I really basically? meant was that. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. No, please stop. Um, no, I just look at something like the Paradise Lost films that had an obvious agenda to them, but really wanted to be that thorough and self-contained. I think I wish... I mean, I like the idea of Serial, this kind of stringing this case along and analyzing each piece of detail in its own episode. I, I just wish I had the full picture that they do. Um, not that they're withholding anything, per se, because they're calculating it and they want things to come later uh, when is uh, when they're appropriate. You just knew, but, you, you just wish you know. knew Bruce Willis was a ghost. I'm off balance with Serial. It's like I could have appreciated <laughs> it for what the movie was trying to be if I appreciate knew it was a movie it. about a ghost. Yeah. Appreciate and, and David David wanted us not to spoil anything from upcoming episodes of Serial, which I couldn't really do. I don't know what the spoilers are. Sarah Koenig was there. a ghost the whole there, time. Ghost all along. That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back on Friday to talk about Birdman, in which nobody gets murdered, so far as I know. Uh, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. Oh, I haven't no, seen no. Birdman. Oh, boy. Uh, no, I, uh, that's not a story. Uh, I am Matt Patches. I write all over the internet. Put everything on mattpatches.com. Try to with my Tumblr, and I'm on uh, Twitter at Mr. Patches. And, uh, you know, each week we put our episodes of Fighting in the War Room on fightinginthewarroom.com, and they have a comment section, and you can share them, and we read it, and we want reactions, so go to fightinginthewarroom.com. I'm David Ehrlich. I'm the editor at large of the White Lies magazine. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich, Net Criterion Corner, and you can find all of us together on Mark Zuckerberg's Facebook at Fighting in the War Room. I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can find my work at I Love Dave Gonzalez. That's D-A-V-G-O-N-Z-A-L-E-S dot com. I killed myself a bear when I was only three. And you can find me on Twitter at DA70. My name is Joanna Robinson. You can find me most days on FanityFair.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe Rothis. Or you can call and leave us a message telling us what you think of Serial at 914-410-6450. And the outgoing message has been changed for all of you who have been waiting in suspense for that to happen. I heard that in the last podcast I wasn't on. I'm so excited. I know. It's a, it's a really a brave new era for us. 
Uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me also on VanityFair.com or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-E-C-H. Twitter is also where you can find all of us at F-I-T-W-R, which is a great place to answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of Ninja, what was a sleepover movie you watched and how did it go? Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you on Friday. <laughs>